This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. Today we are dedicating the show to a very small but very important gland. But first a quiz. This part of the brain is about the size of a pea. It sits in a bone known as the Turkish chair and from its tiny throne this collection of nerve cells orchestrates pretty well all of the hormone glands of the body. Almost all, not all of them though. Um, what is the name of this itty bitty hormone conductor? It, no, <laughs> you can't buzz. It's an audience question. If you said the part of your gland, you'd be close. But no cigar. The organ we are talking about is called the pituitary gland. This one half gram of neurons is as complex in its function as it is in its spelling. Try spelling it. What does it do? What happens when it malfunctions? And how do you operate on a part of the brain encased in bone and designed to be inaccessible, if you believe in a grand designer? Joining us on our pituitary show, we will be speaking to a surgeon, a pathologist, and a patient. First up is Jo, who was 50 years old when she noticed something was going awry. Or maybe she didn't notice, somebody else noticed, but we'll let you know. Multiple doctors and tests later, she found herself on an operating table, that's correct, um, having her pituitary gland ever so gently cradled by a surgeon's instruments. Her recovery meant not just recuperating from the surgery, but also a range of other challenges too. Jo will be chatting with us about her experiences and giving us an insight into what happens when a pituitary gland has problems. Professor Katrina McLean is an old friend of the show. Regular listeners will know that she is Professor Director of a very large anatomical pathology department of a very large hospital next to a park with a helipad, starting with the letter A. How's that for anonymity, Katrina? It just so happens that Katrina's area of specialty is the brain. And she is also director of the Victorian Brain Bank. She's published 420 papers in, in places like Nature, Nature Genetics, Nature Communications. That's very impressive. And has a H factor of 71. I have no idea what a H factor is, but we'll be asking Katrina about that. And thanks to her appearances on this very show, she received an Australia Day Award three weeks ago. Um, excellent. excellent. Uh, Nikki Martins is the kind of guy you want as your wingman at parties. Because if you ever get into a furious academic debate and your adversary says, yeah, mate, but you're no brain surgeon, you can point to Nikki and say, yeah, but he is. In a happy coincidence, Nikki works at the very same institution by the park as Katrina. And his area of specialty just happens to be the itsy bitsy teeny weeny pituitary gland. He's performed over, I can't believe this, 12,000 neurosurgeries. My goodness, 12,000 neurosurgeries and has published more than 60 papers. I mean, when does this man sleep? And to balance out all this uber brain power in the studio is me, Dr. Malpractice. <laughs> but Nurse EpiPen is going to be right there by my side so I don't ask too many dumb questions. All these neurons need some music and a little news from the medical literature. And they'll be getting just that here on Radiotherapy for the next hour. Thank you, Ken. Doctor, doctor, give me the news I got. And this is our very first show for the new year. Welcome, uh, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning. Am I on? You are on, on, but you're low. Yeah, I'm low. (laughs) You're high now. I'm high light now. Oh, not that high. High enough. Not artificially high, just naturally. Now, sitting to your left is Professor Katrina McLean. 
Hi, Rob. Um, Mal. Mal, Mal. How many times do we have to go through this, Katrina? <laughs> Mal, it's my nom de plume, Mal. Mal, Mal, um, Mal. Now, um, you did get an Australia Day Award. Which one was it? Uh, AO, AO, Officer of Australia. Right. Uh, there, there are different ones, obviously. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know much about it myself, to be <laughs> honest. But there's four, I think, four major areas. Um, and what did you get it for? Um, distinguished services is the quote, <laughs> not my words, distinguished services to clinical and academic neuropathology and for services to, as a mentor and, um, uh, so, so what does exactly does a neuropathologist do? Right. A neuropathologists are pathologists who study the brain right. down the microscope effectively. Right. Obviously there are lots of different people who study it in other ways, but as a pathologist my excitement is looking at little bits of brain down the microscope and deciding what's wrong with it. That's how you get your jollies, how you get excited. That's exactly how Look I do at it. bits of brain. It's the only way. See, we need people like you in the world. Who <laughs> <We> really, <do. laughs> really have such a mind. <laughs> and sitting next to you is Joe. Welcome, Joe. Good morning, and thank you for having me, Mel. Now, um, you told us that, uh, or you told me just as I was sneaking in, you, you said to me, "Oh, so there's a running sheet." Like you didn't think we were very professional, <laughs> so clearly we are. But uh, you'd worked in, uh, in 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 TV, and I might get you to squeeze a little bit closer to oh, the microphone. I did. This is many years ago. I worked as assistant director on news and sport at Channel Seven. Wow. That would have been an exciting time. It was, so. really, was really fun. It oh, was fantastic. excellent. Live television is always fun to work on. Just like live radio. Live radio <laughs> so is even better. getting a bit more exciting. You don't have to look nice. <laughs> That's why I do it. Hey, uh, Nurse EpiPen, you were telling us about 35 seconds ago something about people who write medical stuff. What are they called? Scribes. Yes. So <laughs> Nodding doesn't work on the radio. You just nodded at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, this piqued my pituitary. It piqued your pituitary? <laughs> this That's, paper. You're alliterating. Yes. My, so, this is a, um, a study done at um, four hospitals in Victoria yeah. and published in, wait for it, the BMJ. So, that's... That's got a very high strike rate for it. So it's a, an incredibly prestigious medical journal to publish in. Well, they've knocked back all of my papers, so clearly yeah, they have I'm very high so. standards. <laughs> so it was published uh, in January, so it's fresh off the cab, the yeah, rank, yeah. and it's um, to do with um, ele- electronic notes in hospitals. So it's focusing Ooh, about... Contemporary, yeah. It's focusing on what happens in the emergency departments in, in uh, around the world, actually, right, right, yeah. and with this new electronic system where you record a lot of your patient observations and medical records... On the computer. On the computer. Right. So if we, you and I were just thinking about this, you'd think yeah. great computerised yeah. medical care and yeah. documentation, but it's taking a long time to fill in all the squares and the dots on the computer for these doctors. I guess the difference is now when you've got these forms, you have to like, you know, move the cursor into that box, type, tab across, compared to the old days where you just scribble on a piece of paper whilst you're looking at the patient. Correct, and they, yeah. co- they count click times. So how many times they click on the mouse oh. is recorded and you, they sum those up and see how, many, how long it's taking to record patient information. Oh. So they say that the doctors in ED departments are spending about 50% of their time on the computers. And so, so just a, a command bold underline, 50% of the time of an emergency <laughs> department doctor's time... Is spent 
on the computer. I'm so you've got t- 15 minutes with your patient or 10 or yeah, whatever, yeah. and half of that time is filling out... Tabbing. T- tabbing, tabbing. <laughs> clicking. And, and so they've gone, we're spending so much time uh, overtime and the doc- these are the doctors, and um, it's chasing reports, it's booking yeah. ultrasounds, it's finding out what the GP records... And that's records. taking time away from the patient interaction, yes. which is what you're there for. Which is what you're... Yeah. Th- but it's, isn't it ironic? Yeah, it is, it is, it is. This it? is yeah. the... So Atul Gawunda, who's a famous um, surgeon who writes a lot about medical ethics and, and these sorts of philosophical issues, he's saying that he wrote in The New Yorker, about this that it's kooky that here is this electronic system (laughs) and yet it's taking more time so what they've introduced in america and also in these four hospitals in melbourne in victoria is a scribe so it's a a, a scribe like the old-fashioned papyrus and quill (laughs) so i i think they're more like a shadow myself so they shadow the doctors this is a person this is a person who is possible most that most of them are medical students, so they're paid and tr- heavily trained. Yeah. Um, so they have lots of information. They are trained. Um, they read books, medical books, oh, and yes. then they then they do c- clinical days. They have two full clinical days, yeah. and then they um, work with an ED uh, physician and learn all the lingo and learn how to, what's important and right. how to translate. So what the doctor says. So the doctor might say. I can see that this patient has sore or it's got pain or tenderness in the right upper quadrant of the right. abdomen and the scribe will quickly fill that in as that sort of those wordings right. and maybe do something else. I haven't seen the actual screen. Right. Um, and but these scribes, are they're called mobile administrative assistants. M-A-S's. Yes. And they pop, so they Mars. can populate tests. So if somebody wants an FBE, they can click that's the a, FBE. A, so that's a, a full-blood full examination. examination. Oh, so, so they, they click the box. They click the box. So the, so the ED doctor doesn't have to turn away from the patient, look at the screen, click the box. Yes. Yeah, right. Yes. Wow. So, so it's it's a terribly interesting thing, I think, because they got they're popular. Only two ED physicians didn't like them, right. I think, because they hung around them, and there's the patients didn't mind the people yeah. coming in, yeah. and. Um, so what are the outcomes, though? Is it, is it, is it, I mean, is the outcome it's more efficient, the doctors can see more patients or the patients are, 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 are happier and, and sort of feel better cared for? Or Because it's, it's, it's an expense, obviously. Yes. So they've found, and that's a great question, they've found that um, not only did the doctors love them, they got home on time, they were less stressed. Oh, the doctors got the home doctors, on time? The doctors. Oh, that's and a big they thing. Were, and the morale was better <laughs> and they were getting through patients faster in the ED setting. Yeah. So they were spending 19 minutes per shift less uh, um, in doing so they could go home 19 minutes earlier wow. basically so it's uh, so that, and it was there were 25 percent time less on the computer so they were 50 and now they're only 25 percent of their time right. on the computer and um, it's looking like they would want to bring it in uh, they haven't got funding at the moment it was run by um, Prof- Associate Professor Katie Walker, who's um, the uh, director of emergency research medicine, and right. she's very she's very much pushing this forward as a way to move ahead with treating patients in ED settings. Fact. So you might go to ED and you might see two people checking well, you out. And and so the doctor, she will be looking at you in the eye, or, or you know, feeling your tummy, or taking your blood pressure, or doing whatever. And there'll be somebody behind her who'll be typing all that information. On this little mobile computer, Wi-Fi computer, filling out all these bits and bobs. 
But I, yeah, see, I just think that's. It seems to be going backwards in a way. That's that's what I'm thinking. I would have and thought that's nearly backwards. It is. I. It's not. It's counterintuitive. So, and I was even thinking, a. Why but a good. Th- but a good backwards, no, or a bad backwards. You're saying. Well, cost. So, so what yeah. they say. So the American do- study showed that there there were figures of cost in the BMJ article, twenty US dollars, which is twenty five Australian dollars per hour for the mobile for the scribes, yeah. and the ED physicians were a hundred and eighty Australian dollars per hour. Right. So they're thinking, well, let's get these guys in to do more work because they're cheaper. Yeah, and it, it's cost effective in that way, and. Uh, it's but, but, d- but my thing is why? What about my health records? What, what can't they quickly upload all more information from that? So this is a new area, and we won't go touch this now. But there's a lot of information about past history pos- on my health records if you've clicked to be in it. Yeah, can, can, can I just back you up for a second? Sure. And I'm very conscious of the time. Um, so, so Katrina said it's gone backwards, but I. Uh, yeah, I I'm questioning it. Yeah, no, no. I'm I th- just questioning it. But I think good ba- I, I, I'm, it's all de novo right now to me. And obviously, I'm too keen at looking down my microscope, <laughs> and I'm not at the coal face, so I've got no right to say anything anyway. No, no, you do, because you're a consumer, I'm sure, of healthcare. <laughs> we all are. But I, I think it's good backwards in that. Um, uh, good, it's good in that uh, the doctor has more face-to-face Absolutely. time. Absolutely, that's, the that's not in question. Yes, but that's, the, that's the benefit. But the irony is that, is that what you used to do. That's what you used <laughs> to do, and I now mean. a computer's supposed to make it better. But it's, you actually need somebody else to, to type <laughs> to do the it stuff. For you. And I suppose the recording. It's just that's what yes. I'm yeah. struggling with. Struggling mm. with a little bit, and mm. I suppose it's about data collection as well. It's not just about cost savings, Correct. I guess. There's that role of big data. And you've got to ask, what are we collecting the data for? Well, yeah, exactly. And, is it clinical or is it, is it defensive? You know, what's it for? So, so some of it's driven in a defensive way. So yeah. um, this, the hospital near the park yeah. has paid for this huge computer system yeah. and it's, it's already all built in. Yeah. So the prescribing of drugs is phenomenal. So it, there's so Any many... Phenomenal good or phenomenal? Phenomenal bad. Bec- oh. Well, for me, yeah. good. Good's safe. Safe, yeah. But bad <laughs> because it takes forever to order a panel. <laughs> you mean for you as the clinician? <laughs> <laughs> you mean bad is that it takes bad. a long time. Yeah, for me all to right. order a panel. <laughs> it's very, it's very accurate. Yeah, it's good <laughs> for the patients. That's the Good for the patients. It's good for the patients. But in the good old days, just Panadol. <laughs> yeah, good old days. <laughs> I think well, that's the problem. It's all a, the good old days. With a, with a writing was illegible. <laughs> Three. Triple. In the studio with me, Dr. Malpractice, is Joe, Professor Katrina McLean, <laughs> and <laughs> said it with a Spanish accent, and uh, Nurse Epi Ben. Oh. Good morning, everyone, again. Um, so, Joe, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us about a thing that you've... a condition that you've had. And it's very brave to do this. So I hope oh, it's... thanks, Pen. Yes. <laughs> so, so uh, would, you, would you like to just tell us a little bit about your um, um, story about with your pituitary? Yes, I, I would really like to. So um, 11 years ago, I was constantly visiting my GP and saying, I've got the night sweats. My nose is growing. Um, I'm feeling very fatigued and my periods had stopped. Could I ask you just to come a little bit closer to your yes, microphone? That's great. Sorry. Thank you. And um, 
And she kept saying to me, this is really normal. I think you're um, approaching menopause. All these changes are particularly normal. I, I also was complaining of ongoing headaches and just really feeling very, just not myself. And this went on for a number of years. And then I happened to be at, at a function where um, Dr Nick was. Oh, could I interrupt here? So Dr Nick <laughs> is a regular on our show and he does next Sunday's show. So he's a wonderful GP. He is. He's a fabulous GP. And he happened to be at this function and said, Joe, can I take your photograph? And I said, no, I look so ugly, you can't take my photograph. I don't look anything like I used to look and please don't take my photo. And he sneakily took my photograph. <laughs> he took it anyway. He took it anyway. Without my permission. And um, called me the next day and he said, I've compared this to one I found of you 10 years ago <coughs> and I think we need to investigate something. I'd like you to have a blood test. How do you feel about this? And I said, I feel fabulous about this. Please, <laughs> let's let's do this. So so this is a different GP? You, ha- you already had one that you were going to? I was going to a previous GP. Nick, as um, a social friend of mine, um, just happened to, you know, very kindly stand up and say, you look terrible. We think I think we need to do something about this. <laughs> so Nick sent me off for, Dr Nick sent me off for a blood test and it came back with very elevated um, growth hormone levels. So 10 times the normal wow. growth hormone levels. And he said, now I think we need an MRI. So... They sent me off to that beautiful hospital by the park, mm, and I big rap today. Yeah. Isn't it? It's getting a big rap. I'm liking it. And <laughs> I had an MRI. I might add here that I really loathe having MRIs, and I've had many MRIs, and I still don't like them. What don't you like about them? Um, I think I have this fear of um, being buried alive. Um, it's just a very close mm, encounter. Right. However, there are new machines these days that are a little larger that make the experience more tolerable. Um, So had the MRI, this located a um, large-ish two-centimetre tumour on my pituitary gland, attached to my pituitary gland and also attached to a a major artery. So then off off to see the neurosurgeon at Royal Melbourne. Can I I just back up for a second i mean I, I used to hear about this in medical school seriously i'm not no joke that people would be diagnosed by old friends who were doctors who hadn't seen a yes for and years. i think the great problem with this is it just happens so slowly that the changes yeah. are, mm. are very incremental that those people that are close to you accept it yeah. and of course your gp who's been seeing you for a long time and may never have come across this condition mm. um doesn't think to test for this in a blood test. Can I ask again, just to, I think you did say, but could you just say again what Nick noticed was different? Yes, that? so my nose was twice as broad. Right. Um, my skin, <laughs> so unattractive, my skin was thickened. Um, I had other, um, my hands had grown, all the joints and my fingers, my rings didn't fit. My shoe size had expanded. Right. I had arthritis in my hands so I couldn't knock on a door or pull sheets or and I'm a painter so that was all quite um nerve-wracking and terrible sinus and headaches um and fatigue yeah yeah. but I also had really big muscles (laughs) 
<laughs> and I could arm wrestle my 12-year-old. <laughs> so happy. That, that was a positive. Um, and um, did end up with very good bone density. That was... <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> so there was, that there was, was one or two pluses from this. One or two pluses. Right. Right. So... Um, so you got you had some MRIs, so yeah, I had MRIs. Went off to see the neurosurgeon um, at Royal Melbourne, um, and he was fabulous. And off I went in for surgery, which was trans transfoidal surgery, which is through your nose. So, so keep going. How? When keep our, going. Yeah, when our when our surgeon um, uh, comes in, we'll, we'll get we'll get him to explain it. But you keep going. Yeah, yeah. and he will do a great job, much better job than me. But um, so they go through, they make a little incision on the corner of your nostril and with an endoscope and with screens, they manage to remove as much of the tumour as possible. Wow. But a really interesting fact is they take fat from your stomach to replace the space where the t- that the tumour was taking up so you don't have a collapse within that area. So it's, it's, all, it's all very, very interesting. And, and Joe, were you awake or asleep? Fortunately, general anaesthetic. Oh. I'm very happy with a general anaesthetic. And they went in through your nose? Yes. Wow. Brain surgery through the nose? Yeah. That just is amazing. Br- it, brilliant. They're brilliant. It's a fabulous procedure. Wow. And I had it done again 18 months or two years later. And why did you have it again? Because they couldn't remove enough of the tumour the first time and they felt that they would be able to get a better result. So we, I went back again for a second transfoidal surgery and even the second time I went, they'd refined the procedure that it was 50% better than the first time. So advances in surgery. was right. just It was brilliant. Can I ask, I mean, one of the things that some people describe when they have a pituitary tumour, because the pituitary um, uh, sits nestled amongst a whole lot of uh, nerve cells and some of those nerve cells are the ones coming from the eyes. And some people can get some blindness in the outer parts Definitely. of their eye. And that's oh, that happened to you as well? One of the dangers, it didn't happen to me, oh, okay. but it's one of the dangers of surgery that oh, okay. if the tumour is too close to that, you can lose vision. Wow. So they yeah. do, they, that, is, that is a problem, definitely. But I but, went to see, also went to see a specialist eye physician yeah. and had all, everything tested. All your visual Fortunately, fields, yeah. my visual field's perfect. Right. So I was very, very pleased with that right. outcome. Um, but immediately you've had the surgery, you'll get an incredible response. Your body will start eliminating growth hormone. So you virtually wee it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, no, I mean, I lost kilos. I was massively overweight. I must have been about 80 kilos, 85 kilos. I'm usually 68. So you do feel much better immediately. Wow. Period wow. came back the next day. That wasn't a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, you do feel so much better. I mean, I must also say that the team is incredible. You have a surgeon, an endocrinologist, a fabulous GP. Um, you, I mean, you, you can't go past these brilliant physicians. Yeah. And, I mean, so you, you had the surgery. Did you spend, have to spend long recuperating from um, brain so surgery? You mean, I, it, well, so I was in maybe four, four, four or five nights in hospital and then wow. on the couch in the afternoon probably for the next six weeks. I mean, you just have to keep resting. Yeah. Yes. And some of your facial features, did they go back? Did they you, have, did you they notice? have because my GP and I even discussed having plastic surgery on my <laughs> nose. Not that I'm vain in any way. However, it did return to normal. 
So it got well, pretty pre- much normal. Hmm. So yeah, you had post-surgery photos and they look like the pre. Like the yeah, very well, pre. Yeah, the very yeah, yeah, well, if I was gorgeous and young and 40, yes. <laughs> <but> yeah. <laughs> Shucks. Shucks, right. <laughs> but, um, but obviously bone growth stays as bone growth, so your feet won't recover and your hands won't recover. But I'm chemically controlled by my endocrinologist. So, okay. Because there's still some tumour there and it's still emitting growth hormone. And so uh, once a month I will have um, an injection that um, retards growth hormone and your pituitary, uh, the tumour is clever. It starts to work round these medications and will start making more growth hormone. So I've had... I'm on my third different brand. So, oh. so yeah, what medication oh. is it? Yeah, med- oh, it's a sandostatin. So Katrina might have more to say about <laughs> sandostatins. Right. right, okay. So what is, is it injected? You get an inject- it's, in a, it, it's a deep muscular injection into yeah. your bottom. <laughs> yes. Once a month. And then I had radio, I had stereotactic radiotherapy. Wait, what's that? That is a, thank you, Pen, Evie. Um, the, the, you know, they, they they bolt a crown, a metal, it's like a metal halo to your head, which they screw into your... Whoa, 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 hang on. They bolt it to your head? You they serious? screw it in. <laughs> to bolt, bro- bolt might be going too far. <laughs> they, they screw it. But when you say, like, temporarily? Tempor- yeah, temporarily. Okay. Yeah, okay. not a few hours. Oh, okay. okay. A few hours. And to deliver the radiotherapy to the exact spot. So that... That, but, but that is a fantastic treatment. It's over in one day. It's not six weeks of radiotherapy returning every day. And that is meant to kick in after five years. Um, when I was researching that again, I realised that really it hadn't kicked in. Sorry, kick in after five years? What do you mean by that? Well, it can take up to five years to work. The radiotherapy? Yes. After one dose? After, after one, one dose. Right. And I think the reason that they screw those things into your head is because it has to be so precise. So if you moved like one little millimetre in the radiotherapy um, chamber, that could get a part of your brain they don't want you to get. So it's all yes. located on this frame on your head, the, the yes. crown. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Wow, man. One dose. I didn't. Oh, one day's worth. I didn't realise yeah. they just do it for one day. Just one day. Did you feel anything after the radiotherapy? I mm, hard to know because your immune um, system's compromised anyway. So I did lose patches of hair, right? And then came out with um, um, oh, like cold cold sores all over my face and just a just a general sort of right. not feeling great. Right. But I think that's an immune response, not from the radiotherapy. From something I might have just been stressed out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was that? Did you have the radiotherapy? What soon after the surgery or before yes. the? Yes. Su- okay. Yes, soon after the surgery. Oh yeah, and then. So now I'm just chemically controlled. <laughs> chemically controlled, right? Um, Which will go on forever. Right, and w- just with that sandostatin injection you get once a month, mm-hmm. does that block the actual growth hormone Thank from you. working? Yes. Right. Yes. Does that have any other effects? Like, oh yes. Um, well, I mean, it can give you diarrhea, or it can make you constipated, or you can just be a bit tired, or slight memory lapses, mm-hmm. or okay. reflux. Yeah. Or, Fantastic. I mean, there's there's, <laughs> a, there's, a, there's a few. Yeah. Um, Katrina, mm. what what I mean, 
is this common, pituitary tumours? And, um, I mean, where do they come from and how do they grow? And tell us about them. <laughs> where do they come from? Well, yeah. they, 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 they come from the pituitary. Oh, so it's a... Okay, so there's a cell in the pituitary that just there's, says, okay... In the pituitary gland, which is sitting in that cellar that you talked about yeah. at the very beginning, there's a number of cells that have different functions in the body mm-hmm. and inside the cells they have different content and they are different hormones or they're different messages to the rest of the body so mm-hmm. in the circumstance of joe there were the cells that were producing growth hormone which had started to grow and grow and mm-hmm. grow and form a little cluster of cells that were all producing growth hormone and normally the body has this amazing ability to control the levels of our hormones and produce them when they're required Mm -hmm. but in this circumstances because there's just more and more and more cells we the body can't control Mm -hmm. that level so it actually starts to have a permanent effect and has all the effects growth hormone normally does, but there's no control and mm-hmm. you get more growth hormone effect and more because mm-hmm. clearly we all need growth, growth hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, grow, yeah. and, and as with all the other things that are being produced inside the pituitary mm-hmm. and the other specialised cells, they're all absolutely required for our normal function, everyday function, all these special hormones that float around our body and help us to grow and help us to do all sorts does, does, of things. Uh, because I know the pituitary makes yeah. lots of... Other hormones can those other hormone cells become tumours as well? They can all produce individual cells that have just one cell type that's producing a different hormone. So we can have growth hormone, or they can be ACTH, which is another hormone that's involved in production of or downstream cortisol production. Right. And so they can all do individuals. They can produce hormones, and you can have hyperhormone, or they can actually not produce any hormones and they can just grow as a mass in that space without any hormone production. And those people tend to present a little bit later because they have to wait till the mass has caused an effect on a nearby structure, oh. like we were talking before about eyes, yeah. where they have to get outside the cella, that, that yeah. saddle in the brain, and hit that area where the nerves to the eyes are before they start becoming symptomatic because there's no hormone production in some of them so we've got ones with hormones and one without production of hormones growing and that's in the part of the pituitary which is called the anterior pituitary the front the front of the pituitary which is where all the hormones are the back of the pituitary has another function so yes well i was just thinking because in my when i worked in ivf we used to worry about people with abnormal pituitary functions for releasing specific hormones for that are in charge of ovulation, ovulation and yeah. also they're important in breastfeeding. So there's oh, yeah. prolactin and FSH, stimulating hormone, it's a very, very important gland. Yes, it's absolutely central to a whole lot of functions. Does it blow you? I mean, I might be naive here, but does it blow you away that a half a gram of gland that's the size of a pea? has got all these hormone-regulating parts of the body and it's so tiny and yet it controls so much. I think studying the brain and the spinal cord, I'm always overwhelmed yeah, yeah. with the functionality of such small areas or such big areas because yeah. it's just quite... It's just extraordinary, the whole... how many aspects of the brain's work, let alone 
the pituitary, but all sorts of other areas. It just it's fun, functionally extraordinary. Yeah. Do, do you have a favourite part of the brain? <laughs> My favourite part of the brain. Is, yeah. I think mine would be the pituitary after hearing about it. <laughs> do, you, do you like the pituitary? I don't know if I've got a favourite part. Probably the hippocampus, which stores all our memories. I think that that's functionally just extraordinary, just extraordinary, that you can have a single place that creates memories. I mean, it's just an extraordinary thing that's happening. And hey, Joe, just speaking, yeah. of, speaking of memories, you know, they say, they say, that, um, that, that, um, that memories are more likely to be laid down by the hippocampus if they're emotionally laden. Like, you know, I mean, around the time that you were experiencing all these, like, life-changing um, events, I mean, do you have very clear memories of it or is it all kind oh, of like yes. a blur? Oh, no, very clear because I was very um, pleased to have a name for what was... Yeah. Oh, what, yes. what, what What I had because yeah. I thought, I'm honestly, I'm going nuts and I'm making this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I can imagine the, the relief. Uh, it is. Yeah. It's a great relief. So I'm very, very happy with words. And labels, oh, and diagnosis, diagnosis. Makes you happy. Yeah. I mean, I think because good. I knew, I knew there was something more going on. I yeah. just you was, knew couldn't it. find it. Yeah. I couldn't find an answer for it. As I thought, I was going to burst. Yeah, that's how I felt. I felt like my heart was pumping faster, and yeah, everything was just big. I think in some of the other ones where you're secreting other hormones, it also can be a little bit tricky to start off with in the early stages to try and work out what's happening from a clinical level as well. Yeah, and it's frightening. Slightly more vague and, and along until you have to start getting noticed. Yes, because so I, so I remember um, back in the good old days that people used to say, we don't know enough about the brain. It's an area that's very hard and complex and even thinking and memory, that those psychological areas and emotional areas, they're very hard to pinpoint and... You know, I think structurally you can find where areas are responsible for those sorts of jobs. Some of them. Some of them. <coughs> Not all of them. And how, so what do you think... Excuse the brain again. What do we think is... How much do we understand the brain's function? Are we on top of it? Do we no. know... No. no. We know 50% of how it I, works? I, I, I don't think I can tell you a percentage at all. I, I think... 33.2. <laughs> It's a nice number. I could make it 33.3 myself, but I can't tell you. I think there are still definite areas where we really... But there's a lot we don't know. A lot we don't know, but there are some things that we really, really have no idea about, which is... It's interesting. I think it's a challenge. It's good. We need to not be able to understand everything to keep us going. Three triple R. In the studio is me, Dr. Mal Practice, Joe, Nurse EpiPen, Professor Katrina McLean, and we're joined uh, by Nikki, who is our uh, triple R uh, radiotherapy neurosurgeon. And uh, Nikki, you've come at the right moment. We had a caller call in and ask her dad um, is an identical twin and he got a pituitary tumour, but uh, his identical twin didn't. How does that work? Thank you. Um, the vast majority of uh, pituitary tumours you get by being unlucky. Yeah. Um, there are um, a, there is a certain condition where you can get uh, genetic tumours, mm -hmm. um, and in um, the uh, particular uh, condition that that Joe um, has, um, there is a familial uh, um, incidence of of. Uh, 
of growth hormone oh, really? uh, tumors. Oh. Um, but in her particular, um, in this lady's particular case, I'm not surprised that the twin um, does not have the mm. tumor. Mm. Did you know that, Joe, that there was a familial that uh, it might have some, might have been somebody back in your family history that had it or? No, I did ask, but I couldn't get any answers from <laughs> you. You had to come here for an answer. You had to come here for the answer, exactly. There, there is a, a, a very, very interesting um, uh, uh, report of of uh, familial um, tumors is that there in the 18th century there was a an, a, a person uh, called burn who was an irish giant and his uh, skeleton is uh, now in the the royal college of uh, surgeons in the hunterian museum in london and what one of my colleagues did is they got permission to extract some genetic material from this giant's tooth and what they did is they then uh, managed to track relatives and they were able to prospectively identify, they wow. found out that this was a familial tumor and they were able to prospectively identify 21 people suffering from this condition that were able to be identified before they became symptomatic and, and, and treated. So that was a, you yes. know, it was remarkable. That is jaw dropping. Yeah. That is incredible, really. My goodness. And Nikki, you were saying before that, just whilst we are off air, that um, Joe's particular type of uh, tumour is quite uh, uncommon. It's, it's, it's not common, but mm -hmm. it's not, you know, I, I, we probably see about um, a five a year. Right. Um, so there would be, in Melbourne, there'd be about four or five units doing pituitary tumours, so you get an idea of the yeah, uh, yeah. the the, uh, the incidence. Right. And Joe was telling us that uh, the type of surgery was called a transphenoidal uh, approach um, through the nose. Could you just take us through um, what you actually, like what the end of your probe does as it's going up <laughs> into the brain? Well, the um, technically the pituitary gland is, although it's attached to the brain by a thin stalk, technically it's outside the brain, so you can't brag about having a brain tumor. Um, it it sits in no, a little you, you it sits in a little depression at the bottom of the skull, and if you put a, a telescope up the nose, um, all that is between you and the pituitary gland is a sinus which is a hole in the base of the skull lined with mucosa uh, just so, cells yeah so with a um with a uh, an ear nose and throat surgeon they get you access into this the sinus this hole and then there's a very thin layer of bone between the sinus and the pituitary gland, and we open that up, and 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 there it is. So there's no retraction on the brain; it's minimally invasive, and it's more like a nose operation than a brain operation. Uh, seriously, my jaw is dropping just hearing this. So you, you, it's teamwork. You, 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 an ENT surgeon gets you access to the pituitary. Yes. And then you do the operation on the pituitary. Yes, they get us access to the the base of the skull, and uh, you really need three hands. So that's why you need, um, you know. You need two surgeons, and uh, you need a um, you need a good ear, nose, and throat surgeon with with endoscopic skills. And and just to give us an idea, I mean, what's the size of the gland you're operating on that you see down the telescope? Well, under normal conditions, it's um, the size of a pea. Yeah. And uh, when you get uh, uh, 
tumors in the gland or various disorders of the gland, it, it enlarges. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it presents in different ways. You can either have conditions where you get an <coughs> excess production of certain hormones or you <coughs> get a deficiency of hormones for, for uh, uh, you know that the pituitary yeah. norm normally produces or if it starts enlarging, it'll start encroaching on the nerves to the eyes, yeah, which yeah. run just above it, and it can start causing visual failure. Yeah. So we're talking that your surgery has to be w within a millimetre of tolerance type of stuff. Well, the you do have to be very accurate, and you, you it's a combination of using anatomical landmarks, uh, the radiology that you've looked at beforehand and we also have um, a neuronavigation system where a, a scan that's done beforehand can be used during the operation for, for navigating and we try and get it to be as accurate as possible because just on either side of the pituitary gland are the two major blood vessels that supply the head with blood. So, you know, you can injure those. Do you know, the, the, the psychiatrist in me wants to do a whole other show on of why would you want to be a neurosurgeon? I mean, that's <laughs> the stress levels. I'm getting anxious just talking to you. But we're going to come back to that because we, we've got some sponsorship announcements. I'm going to leave that, that image in uh, our listeners' head of, of like a GPS kind of guide and I'm going to we're going to come back and I'm, I'm going to ask you to talk us through that a bit more but listeners we've got some more uh, sponsorship announcements just have a listen to these and then we will be back speaking uh, with Nikki The Basin Theatre presents Murder by Natural Causes a witty thriller combining comedy with a suspenseful ingenious plot Located in lush bushland surrounds, the historic Basin Theatre offers a complete night. Tickets include a drink upon arrival, refreshments at interval, plus supper and wine to be enjoyed with the cast post-show. Group discount supply. The Basin Theatre's Murder by Natural Causes, running Thursdays to Sundays until March 9th at thebasintheatre.org.au. Triple R Sponsors. Live production crew are the unseen but essential backbone of the music events that we all enjoy, but these roles can often take their toll on those involved. On Sunday, March 10, join Roadie for Roadies for a walk along the foreshore from Port Melbourne to the Palais Theatre in St Kilda for a family day of fun and entertainment as they raise money for Support Act helping artists and music workers back on their feet when they've hit a tough patch and need support. For tickets and more information, go to roadieforroadies.com. A Triple R community service announcement. So we were just chatting uh, in the break um, whilst listening to the sponsorship announcements about that uh, fascinating case of the skeleton and the, the tooth in the John Hunter Museum and then prospectively finding out who's actually at risk of having a pituitary tumour. Fascinating. But, Nikki, back to this um, guiding the surgery, you said you'd do a, an MRI beforehand and that how does that guide you whilst you're doing the surgery? What, what we do is um, we actually do a CT scan beforehand because a CT is more accurate than, a, than an MRI, you know, two-dimensional accuracy. The, when you oh. do an MRI, the magnetic fields aren't, you know, they aren't uniform or linear, but a CT scan is. So a CT scan yeah. is actually better. So um, you do a CT scan and then what you do is you co-register the surface of the face and the head with the image on the computer. So you match them up. Yeah, and, yeah. Then, and then literally this is, it's, this is Star Wars technology. 
mm. and 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 you use the and you use a probe that that navigates you and you try and get the accuracy to within a millimeter or two so that uh, you know when you're in the midline and you know when you near these blood vessels on either side and it can be you know it can be very important. So Nikki, how are you steering the probe? Have you got a little steering wheel at the at your end? It's it's used by the the probe has got two reflective light receptors and then there's a um, there's a uh, the eyes that the computer can see how these these two light receptors are orientated in space and then you know they oh, it it, it navigates for you yeah can i mean i i mean i kind of envisage that you'd have almost like a virtual reality 3d mask on is it does well is that in the future of neurosurgery what, what's or? happened is you get the the person's head is is in a a rigid clamp yeah. so that it can't move yeah. and then you have a uh, a um a an array of these light receptors so they know how the head's positioned in space and that's rigid and then you have this probe which the the the, the light receptors also pick up and that tells you where you are on a on a computer screen oh. yeah so i mean yeah. i th- think that you know when i when i started neurosurgery this technology was was being introduced and now it is i mean you know, almost everything that's done is done using navigation. Right. I mean, yeah. where are we going to be in five years' time? We're going to have driverless cars. What's going to happen to neurosurgery? Because it, it does require a level of precision that is far more uh, accurate than I, I imagine other areas. Look, I think the 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 accuracy will just carry on improving, and um, <clears throat> and instead of having to have the 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 head rigidly fixed you will you know it'll be able to be mobile mm. and uh, and and these advancements are, are you know happening all the time mm. um with the pituitary tumors that i mean your area is one of your areas of specialty of neurosurgery is pituitary tumors uh, are they common i mean do you see a lot of them the uh, they they looked at the logbooks of um american um uh, training neurosurgeons and of the brain tumors that they operated on 18 percent of them were approached through the this you know this the nose, this, yeah. this, this this nose approach going right. through that sinus so you can assume from that or extrapolate from that that 18 percent of the tumors that you see as a training neurosurgeon are pituitary region. So that right. gives you an idea. So they, they're not uncommon. The other thing I can say is that, and Katrina would probably comment more on this, is that if you did autopsies on 100 normal people that die from unrelated causes and you look at their pituitary mm-hmm. gland, up to 20% of them will have small tumors that are asymptomatic in their gland. What? 50, how many percent? Twenty percent. Twenty-two percent, in fact. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think they did the studies a long time ago when we did autopsies more freely. Right. Um, and they did find that those very small tumours in the pituitary gland were very common. Right. Like there are interestingly small tumours in other sites that are very common and asymptomatic at autopsy. But the pituitary, in particular, there just be, can be a few cells that have started to grow right. in a kind of autonomous way. So not at all necessarily symptomatic. Not any sort of high levels of hormone and some of them no hormone at all so effectively asymptomatic at that stage uh, uh. yeah and, and Nikki, i imagine you must given the the complexity of the uh 
of the pituitary, you must work with the team, as Joe was saying, with endocrinologists and, and so forth. It is very much a multidisciplinary, yeah. you know, you have, because of the visual failure, you, all patients have to have a, a visual assessment yep. or assessments. You've got the radiologists, you've got the pathologists who are vital in yes. um, in telling us <laughs> of course. what sort of tumours they are and that determines how yep. they're treated. Yep. Um, you have the um, endocrinologists <clears throat> and then you've got the, the, the neurosurgeons. This is, this is, I mean, we could spend another five shows talking about but this particular area too. Might be quite interesting for people to understand that when the pituitary tissue comes out and is given to me in pathology, we can not only recognise this as a tumour of the pituitary, but we can do markers to say what the cells are secreting. So we can say that it is growth hormone in excess. I mean, people may not understand that, but we can literally have specific markers that bind to growth hormone and say, well, we know that this is not only a pituitary tumour, but it's growth hormone is in the cell sites, in the cell. So bust by these advanced markers in our field as well. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.